2 uh, Corinthians chapter 5. Uh, we're going to get that in just a second. Um, what we've been doing over the past several weeks is we've been going through a little mini-series that we've called Signs of Life. And what this is, is we're really exploring the bigger question of what does it look like when God begins to move in people's lives and show up and do profound things. Uh, there's different, uh, many different types of evidences that God uh, puts on display through people's lives that have been transformed or people's lives that have been changed. Uh, for example, last week we saw love. Love is one of those signs. It's one of those examples that when God moves, when God transforms people's lives, uh, when a community of people have been impacted by God, uh, one of the overflows or the evidences of that is love. In fact, Jesus was so uh, emphatic about this. He said that if you claim to have a relationship with God and you're either an individual or you're part of a community of individuals that doesn't have love, then the outside world, the other tier of people outside of that can actually push back on you and challenge you can challenge you actually in two ways, Jesus said. Uh, he says either A, they can challenge you by wondering whether or not you're really even a, a Christian. In other words, uh, they'll actually question, are you really even a Christian? Do you re even, even really know God? The second way, he says, they'll push back and challenge and wonder whether or not God really even cares for this broken, fallen world and even question whether or not God sent his own son. Uh, those are the two different types of things that Jesus said would take place. So I think it's John chapter 14 and then John chapter 17, the two ways in which Jesus says, if we don't have love for each other, these are ways in which the world will challenge. So the point of the matter is this, is that one of the evidences or signs that God has moved in our lives or changed us is we love. Not perfectly, not always, but we want to. We're moving in that direction. We're wanting to conquer and overcome those areas of hatred or anger that maybe uh, ruined our lives or occupied parts of our heart for many, many years. We want to let God's love continue to change us. And so today we're going to continue on that theme. Uh, we're going to be taking a look at the subject that a lot of times we choke on, and it's the subject of reconciliation. Um, and the point of the matter is, is that love actually moves into this secondary relationship of reconciliation. I'll get more into that in just a second. But I'm going to pray, and then we're going to get to work. This is a very challenging uh, subject matter that we're going to be taking a look at here today. It's one that every single one of us uh, will struggle with, have struggled with, or at some point we'll find ourselves right smack in the middle of it because we are fallen people. We are sinners. Uh, we will offend other people. We will step on other people's toes. We will do things that cause damage to relationships, uh, oftentimes damaging the people whom we love the most. And this issue of how do we get past this offense and how do we move on through these uh, arenas of offense on into wholeness or the way Jesus would describe it, shalom, how do we move into that is a matter of really utmost importance to us. And you'll see why in a moment here that this is a matter of centrality to the gospel, or a person whose life has been changed by God. So I'm going to pray, and then we'll begin to start off by taking a look at this passage in 2 Corinthians 5, and then we'll get to work. So let's pray. God, right now we just ask for your help, and we ask you, Father, that you would open our eyes, and we just confess that just even the subject matter makes us a little bit uh, uncomfortable. It's challenging for us. We, we know, God, we have all been recipients of offense. We've all found ourselves in places where we have been hurt people whom we've looked up to, people whom we've trusted, people whom we've given our hearts over to, and yet they didn't treat our hearts with carefulness. They didn't honor us. They weren't trustworthy. They betrayed us. They broke us. They defiled us. 
And God, for some of us even right now, it's, this is just uncomfortable. And we ask God right now that your spirit would move in our hearts, in our lives, opening our eyes to the bigger picture of what you're wanting to do in us and through us, that we would be truly, God, a community of people that are radically transformed by the gospel, that we don't just simply be people that profess Christianity, that we're not just simply changed culturally in terms of adapting a form of godliness yet denying its power, but God, that would be people that are radically transformed by its power and through its power go forth and transform other people. So we ask for your help to do this, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, first, uh, Second Corinthians 5 starts off like this. If you guys don't have a Bible, we have Bibles in the back. Feel free to grab one. Second Corinthians 5 says, In Christ, uh, let's pause real quick. Um, Paul, I'll just say this as a side note. Paul is radically, and here's a big theological word for you. Paul is radically Christocentric. All right? In other words, everything in Paul's theology and everything in Paul's life centers on the person of Jesus. Uh, this might seem to be an obvious, like E on the I chart, but the reality is, in a lot of ways, uh, churches can sometimes sort of uh, degenerate, if I can use that word, into where they're more social, where churches and services can often be about five nice lessons on how to learn to get along with other people, or six lessons on how to learn to spend your money wisely, and good practical realities, but oftentimes Christ is not the center of it anymore. It becomes more about how you function in society, or how you act uh, with relation to other people, and Christ is somehow not the center of it all, but I, I really just want to emphasize this, that for Paul, Christ is absolutely everything. That's why Paul starts out in this little passage here to talk about reconciliation, that all of this centers on Christ. So he starts off by saying, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, but entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors of Christ, for Christ, God making his appeal through us, and we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. So in short, what Paul is basically saying is what's happened in the gospel, and he's writing to a group of believers uh, who lived in a city called Corinth, and Corinth was a pretty messed up church. In fact, uh, you may even look at it this way. Corinth was probably about as messed up as any other church on the planet today. Um, they had factions within their groups. They had people arguing. They had people that were ultra super spiritual, speaking in tongues, rolling down the aisles, prophesying. And they had other people that were like judging those that were doing that. They had people that were feeling free to like drink or eat meat that was sacrificed to idols. And yet this whole other sect of people that were like, well, we're vegetarians, so we have the right to judge you. And they had all the same types of conflicts that you and I in today's culture have today. And what Paul's saying is that here's the simple nutshell of the gospel. God reconciled you, who had nothing in common with God because of your sin, and yet God reconciles you. God broke down the middle wall of partition that was erected, not by him, but by you, and he broke that down, and he reconciled you. He brought you back to himself, and then Paul goes on to say, and now that through you, God has actually given you a commission who have been reconciled to now go and be reconcilers. This is what Paul's saying. Now, in our culture, especially church culture, we love to sort of reduce the work of the ministry down to professionals. 
You know, it's why we hire like professional clergy. We look for professional pastors, look for professional counselors, look for professional reconcilers, whatever you want to look at it. Professional people that will do the work of the ministry, the hard work, the things that we are struggling over or challenged by. But what Paul is actually saying here is that if you're a Christian in this room, you've been reconciled to God. That's your status before God. Paul goes on to say you've not only been given a status before God, but you've also been given a commission, a vocation, a call, something to do with your life, something to do with the energy now that you have, something to do with the free heart that you have been given back to you. Now that you're free because you've been reconciled back to God, now you are free to go be a reconciler to those that you're either at odds with or those that are at odds with God. You are now one commissioned by God, empowered by God to go forth and be a reconciler. This is what Paul's saying. So this issue of reconciliation is a matter of centrality, I would say, to the heart of the gospel. In fact, if you want to summarize, there's always a danger whenever you sort of uh, truncate something or summarize something, uh, especially when you have a book as big as the Bible, 66 chapters, written by lots of different authors over hundreds of years, uh, many, many pages, many, many verses, many, many words. Uh, when you summarize anything or truncate anything, you oftentimes lose a lot of clarity and definition. But if, for example, you were to reconcile or basically say the Bible or bring the Bible in terms of summary into one word, I would say it's one word is reconciliation. That God is reconciling all things that are out of sync, out of rhythm, out of order from God back to himself. And he has done this through Christ. This is what God is at work doing. And if you have been reconciled to God, God actually brings you into this game plan, part of the agenda. In other words, you become part of his strategy to do this work. So in other words, this is not just simply something relegated to the class of the professional or the skilled or the trained, that God has called all of us, if you've been reconciled to God, to be part of this ministry of reconciliation, the way Paul would describe it. So I want to take a look at three specific things here this morning, the first of which is why we need to forgive, because forgiveness and reconciliation really go hand in hand, why we need to forgive, how we're to forgive, in other words, sort of a, an example, and then finally, the power to forgive. So again, why, how, and then ultimately, where do we get this power to be able to forgive? So the first thing is why we need to forgive. There's three things I really want to jump into very quickly. First of all is we need to forgive because it shows or it's a sign that demonstrates that you have received reconciliation or forgiveness. It becomes one of the tangible evidences or signs that we're talking about, one of the evidences or signs that you yourself have actually been forgiven by God. In other words, this is more of a subjective reality, that if you indeed have been reconciled and forgiven by God, one of the evidences or actions that should flow out of that is that you yourself are forgiving. In other words, uh, there's other passages even like this in the New Testament that would describe the reason why we can be loving or we're free to love is because we've been loved. The reason why we can show mercy is because we have received mercy. And if we're somebody that refuses to show love or are not showing love or not showing mercy, we are actually giving evidence to the fact that maybe we have not really received mercy, or maybe we have not really received love, or maybe we have not really received forgiveness. So there's a subjective reality to this that is an evidence or a demonstration. It's one of the reasons why we saw last week when Jesus said that if you don't love, the world has the right 
to question whether or not you really know the love of God. And it basically plays into this essential point that I'm making right here, is that love, or forgiveness, I should say, the reason why we need to forgive is because it, first of all, really demonstrates the fact that we have been received forgiveness and reconciliation from God. The second thing is that it shows that you're part of God's new humanity, new creation, or to simply use a New Testament word, you're ch the church. You're part of the church. And the church, you got to get this understanding, is that oftentimes we kind of have this idea that, you know, God saved me, and the next step in my Christian growth is I go to heaven. So, you know, I said a prayer, I prayed the Jesus prayer, I went forward at a conference, I, you know, cried on the, my knees before God, or I, you know, gave my heart to Jesus, however you want to describe that, next up in my walk with Jesus, I get to go to heaven, I get rapture, something else happens, and I get to go be with Jesus. That's actually faulty theology. It's not accurate. It's, it's not untrue, don't get me wrong, but it's not complete. If you're a Christian, yeah, you will go to heaven someday. But until that happens, God has a commission for you. He's called you to be part of what he calls his church. It's his strategy, it's his purpose to spread the gospel, to live the gospel out in this world. That's one of the reasons why I, I love what Dave Foote's doing. I mean, the guy owns a business, he's been doing this for a very long time here. Everybody who's anybody in this county knows who Dave is, and they all know that he's a Christian. They know that he loves Jesus. They know that he serves at his church. They know that he cares about the gospel. They know this about him, and he's just living the gospel out, doing the things that he does, doing the things that he does best, doing what God's given him, but also using his energy as a means to do what he does well, but also at the same time live the gospel out. In reality, this is important to what God wants to do, that we as a church are part of God's strategy to do this. And he does this first and foremost by reconciling us to himself and then reconciling us to one another. And so then from that, then we become part of the strategy that God has, part of his new humanity, part of the church, to live this out. The third thing is that ultimately, unforgiveness is actually destructive. You know, over the past 50 years or so, there's been a lot of studies, a lot of research that has gone into trying to understand the consequences of forgiveness or the consequences of living out vendettas or vindictiveness or a sense of retribution. A lot of studies gone into this, especially post-World War II. It's very fascinating. There's, there's some shows that you can watch. In fact, if you have Netflix, you can check out a show. It's called The Power of Forgiveness. I highly recommend checking it out. It's a great show. Uh, it was directed or produced by the guy that actually had uh, done that movie. Maybe some of you have seen it uh, about Bonhoeffer. Um, great, great movie about forgiveness. And in the movie, they actually talk a little bit about uh, the community of the Amish people. Maybe some of you remember several years ago uh, in the Amish community in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, uh, there was a massacre that happened. A guy had gone in and just killed lots of young school children. Um, just killed all these people. And very shortly after this happened, and after it hit the news, everybody was shocked. Because you could imagine, this is a very, in a lot of ways, uh, anti-technology or, or, uh, anti, um, type community. They would think, you know, who's going to have a gun in this community? They're kind of anti all that type of stuff. But it happened there amongst them. And very shortly afterwards, uh, what shocked the world, actually, literally the world, was the Amish community as a whole forgave the perpetrator. It was like shocking. Like, like people were, they, they were being short-circuited because they just could not, there was no way to categorize this type of thing. 
And the reality is, is that there's been a lot of studies that have gone into trying to figure out the consequences or side effects of unforgiveness, and they've discovered that it's actually very, very harmful, not only to you personally, but also to the various rings of relationships outside of you. So, for example, if you're married, it's very dangerous to your spouse, to your kids, for you to harbor a grudge, for you to be angry, for you to be bitter, for you to be unforgiving. It just keeps having this negative effect and impact on all sorts of relationships in and through and around your life. There was a scholar, theologian, his name was Frederick Buechner, and I want to read this particular passage to you. It's a really great passage out of a uh, book that he had written called Wishful Thinking. And here's what he says. Of the seven deadly sins, anger is the most fun. To smack your lips over grievances long past, to roll your tongue uh, the, over the prospect of bitter confrontation still to come, to savor both the pain you are given and the pain that you are giving back in many ways is a feast fit for a king. Just pause and think about this. How many of you agree with this? I totally agree with it. I think it's fantastic, like absolutely right on. If you've ever kind of harbored a grudge or have ever had sort of this sense of anger or bitterness in your heart towards somebody else, you know exactly what he's talking about here. It feels empowering, doesn't it? You feel like you're on top of the world. You feel like you can just, you want to crush something or crush somebody. And, but what he goes on to say is that this feast, as he kind of likens it to, it's like a feast fit for a king, but he goes on to say, but the chief drawback is what you're wolfing down is actually yourself. The skeleton at the feast is you. And this is his way of basically saying, which uh, scientists and sociologists and psychologists have actually researched and done the hard you know, research on this and discovered that this is absolutely true. That at the end of the day, bitterness, anger, unforgiveness actually ends up destroying you first and foremost. There's been all sorts of studies on this. For example, societies or cultures that are locked in this cycle of vindication, they don't flourish. When was the last time you bought a gross national product from Palestine? North Korea. You're probably not going to, because what's happened is there's a cycle of vindication going on, and it's actually stymied the growth of the community. They can't advance. They can't get along. They can't move forward. They can't combine and unite and say, how can we make society better for each other? How can we make society better for the world? How can we invest in infrastructure? How can we invest in world commerce? How can we make things better? Because they're literally eating each other alive in a cycle of vindication. Like, like sociologists know this, that at the end of the day, any form of unforgiveness is really at the end of the day, it's totally destructive, totally destroys. So here's the question, how are we to forgive? How are we really to kind of apply this and do this? Um, what's interesting is that we don't have to kind of make this up because Jesus actually gives us a really fantastic answer to this. In fact, in Matthew chapter 18, why don't you guys open there real quick. Matthew chapter 18, we're going to read a passage in which Jesus actually addresses this. And what I love about this is that Jesus has actually asked the question himself. Uh, Peter, right, chief apostle, comes to Jesus and he's like, Jesus, how many times should I forgive? And I love this um, and there's also speculations why Peter goes on and says this. But he's like, Jesus, should I forgive seven times? You know, it's kind of like, that's awesome. Seven times. Like, I'm, you know, you smack me on the cheek, I'll let him smack me six more times. All right? 
and, and Jesus says, no, Peter, not seven times, but 70 times seven. And then he goes on and begins to explain really the basis of forgiveness and reconciliation. And he does so in a story. And what I love about Jesus is he basically just says, I'm going to tell you a story. And the center of this story is a king, a king who had a servant. And he goes on in the story in Matthew chapter 18, pick it up at verse 23. He says this, it's kind of a long passage, so follow along if you would. He says, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. And I love this, just that, that, that phrase right there is amazing. This king, whoever this king is, obviously at this point, uh, you'll find in a moment, Jesus is actually also himself radically Christocentric. So Jesus makes himself the hero of the story because he is, no doubt, the king. Um, but he says, whoever this king is, this king actually has intent in his heart to settle the accounts of offense with those who have offended him. It's, pause on that that's a powerful thought but he says he wished to settle accounts with his servants in verse 24 and when he began to settle one who brought one who was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents and since he could not pay his master his master ordered him to be sold his wife and his children all that he had and payment to be made so the servant fell on his knees imploring him and he said have patience with me and I will pay you everything he says and out of pity for him the master of the servant released him and forgave him the debt but then the servant went out, and he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii, and seizing him, he says he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. And so the fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, and says, have patience with me, and I will pay you. But he refused, and he went and he put him in a prison until he should pay the debt. And when the fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and they reported to their master all that had taken place. And then the master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all debt. So also my father, my heavenly father, will do to everyone if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. What's interesting about this story is that, again, in short, the cast of characters is, one, a master or a lord, the way Jesus describes him. And then two, other servants, two other servants. The one servant, this first servant, we'll call him servant one, he owes the master 10,000 talents, which, you know, most scholars have sort of calculated that this is sort of an incalculable sum. In other words, Jesus is actually purposefully in the story using hyperbole, as if to say, you know, if in today's, you know, language, if we're telling a story, we're like, someone that I know owes $500 trillion, we would immediately interpret that and think, it's just an unpayable debt, unpayable sum of money. That's what Jesus is saying. So it's equivalent to around $6 billion is what some scholars would say. Um, and what happens is that this guy actually is, owes this debt to the master. And the master is about to cast him and his wife and his family into what's called debtor's prison. And uh, in fact, the, uh, this first servant actually has the tenacity to push back and say, I'll do everything I can to pay the debt back. But if you were a first century person hearing this story, you would immediately think, that's silly. How in the world can anybody pay back $6 billion? Even if you had a 1,000 lifetimes, you couldn't pay that amount back. So in other words, this is an incalculable amount that nobody at all would be capable or able of paying back, not even with a 1,000 lifetimes. So this guy actually is forgiven. His debt is canceled. His 
uh, his placement is given back to him. His status is given back to him. His identity is given back to him. He ends up going out to one of his servants who owes him the equivalent of what's described here as 100 denarii, uh, or some scholars have identified this as around 20 weeks of common labor or about $12,000. So in other words, the sum of money that this guy owes is not insignificant. You know, it's not like, oh, he owes him $1. No, it's, it's, it's a pretty large sum of money. Um, it's not totally insignificant, but it's a pretty large sum of money that this second guy owes. And what happens is the first servant that was forgiven this $6 billion debt goes out after his servant who owes him $16,000 and he starts choking him and seizing him and not letting him go and refusing to let him pay or refusing to let him go free. And then report gets back to the master, the overarching master over all things, who then summons the first servant who was forgiven $6 billion dollars. And he's questioned, why would you do this? Were you not forgiven a large sum? If you were forgiven this large sum, why are you not living as if you've been forgiven? What Jesus is assuming in the storyline here is that those that have been forgiven, the proper sign or proper image or proper life that should overflow should be one of gratitude. But what's happening is that the story is actually revealing that the character the heart of the first servant, who was forgiven $6 billion, really was one of evil. He, he truly was not looking to forgive, even though he had been radically forgiven. And what Jesus says is that he is on a path to destruction. In other words, what Jesus is really saying is that all the scientists, all the sociological studies, all the psychological studies just merely confirm what Jesus has been saying all along. Unforgiveness leads to torment, leads to a prison, leads to destruction, leads to, ultimately, if it's not extinguished, hell. That's what he's saying. So here's the point. How does he show forgiveness? There's three things. First of which, take a look at, real quick, verse 27. He says, and out of pity, the king, out of pity, he, for him, uh, the master of the servant released him and forgave him. So take a look at the first thing. First of all, it says that he showed pity for him. This is a great Greek word. It's the particular Greek word, splachnizomai. Splachnizomai. Great word, huh? You're like, I want to learn a new Greek word today. There you go. Splachnizomai. But what's great about this word, uh, even though it's kind of an interesting word to even say, uh, is a word that almost exclusively is used oftentimes of Jesus in the New Testament and it refers to an emotion. Uh, it's a word that oftentimes can be described as compassion. Some older translations might even describe it as bowels. And it might, be seem, it might sound like kind of a funny translation. Why would someone describe this sense of compassion or splakizomai as bowels? And let me give you an example. If you've ever hurt so bad over somebody who's in going through some, something horrible, maybe someone dying from cancer or someone in a moment of great turmoil or crisis or you, your heart just goes out after them. There's an idiom that we use that, again, why idioms need to be explained sometimes. If someone from, say, Korea came and they're like, what does it mean to have compassion? You're like, oh, it means your heart goes out after them. And they're like, wait a minute, your heart leaves your body and goes out after them? That's weird. Uh, again, it's an idiom, but it's a great idiom because it means that someone's heart actually goes out and attaches to somebody's condition. 
The idea of bowels means you feel something inside. Have you ever had that sense of just pain, deep, gut-wrenching pain over someone's sorrow, over someone's shame, over someone's brokenness, over someone's sin? This is what the king feels and senses towards this person. He says, has pity for him. It's a word that's used of Jesus. What's amazing about this, in every case, uh, when Jesus has pity for someone, he sees someone, uh, say for example, who's demon-possessed, he has pity for them, and he releases them from the demonic oppression. Or someone who's sick, he releases them from the sickness. Really what we see with Jesus every single time, his compassion is attached to how he sees them through the work of redemption. In other words, Jesus is always looking at what life would be like in a circumstance or in a person's life should God's kingdom come and God's will be done in that circumstance. In other words, Jesus is able to see some little girl, for example, who is bound by sickness, might even die, and he sees the fact that the potential of what she could be, she could be raised from the dead, she could be full of life, full of beauty, and so Jesus, seeing the future, seeing, knowing what redemption could ultimately bring about, heals her. This is what pity is. See, here's why this is important to know. Because here's what happens to each one of us. Rather than showing pity, what we typically do is we dehumanize the person who perpetrated an offense against us. See, rather than having compassion, rather than truly letting our heart go out after them, and that means really trying to understand circumstances from their angle. See, the reality is we, we don't oftentimes know why people do the things that they do. Do we? We really don't. We might think we do. We might render judgments based upon our limited knowledge. But at the end of the day, we really don't know why people do the things that they do. God does. And in this particular case, God says what needs to happen is you need to let your heart go out after this person. Show compassion. Have pity upon them. And this will begin to bring about this restoration. Like I said, what happens for us oftentimes is we have this tendency to sort of flatten somebody out and turn them into sort of a one-dimensional caricature. You know what a caricature is? If you go to the, you know, the pier down in Pismo Beach, you're always going to find some cartoonist down there. And you're like, ah, can you like draw my picture? And you get your caricature made. And this person has no vendetta against you. They're not angry with you. And they're going to accentuate features on your face. Like if you got kind of semi you know, monobrow, you know, brow, they're going to make you have big, fat monobrow, you know, across your forehead. Or if you got semi-big nose, they're going to make your nose really big. If you got big Adam's apple, your Adam's apple is going to be like the main feature on that cartoon. And it's this tendency to sort of accentuate features about somebody or flaws about somebody. This is what we do when somebody offends us. And here's what happens. Two things take place. One, we do this as a way of basically justifying ourselves. We feel more right in our ways. We feel more justified. And at the same time, what we're doing is we're putting them down. We're dehumanizing them. There's a guy, pastor, um, theologian, this guy by the name of Miroslav Volf, and in a book called Exclusion and Embrace, I don't have the quote up there, we just listen to it. He says this, forgiveness flounders because I exclude the enemy from the community of humans, even as, even as I exclude myself from the community of sinners. In other words, one of the reasons why forgiveness or reconciliation flounders in our lives, because one of two things happen. I have a tendency to look at the offender and say, well, they're just an idiot. 
their brain's really small, or they're just, they're just a liar, or they're just a thief, and they're always going to be a thief. They're just a deceiver, and they're always going to be a deceiver. What we're actually doing is we're taking that person, made in God's image, and we're reducing them to a one-dimensional caricature, a figure, that now we can oftentimes lob our little darts at. Simultaneously, what we're actually doing is we're basically saying, I'm not part of that community of sinners. I don't do those types of things. Um, one of my favorite preachers, a guy by the name of Tim Keller, has a way of describing this. Another way he describes it, he says, oftentimes, when somebody does something against me and comes to me, and let's say, for example, they lied against me, my propensity, my tendency is to look at them and say, you liar, you're just a liar, and you've always been a liar, you will always be a liar. That's it, you will always just be a liar. But if I got caught in a lie, someone came to me and says, you just lied. Here's what I do. I'll say, well, I'm not a liar. Yes, I lied. It's pretty complicated. You don't really know the whole story. So in other words, what we're doing is we're basically, when we lie, we rarely would ever do the same thing to other people that we would do to ourselves. We would sort of justify it in ourselves. We would say, well, the circumstance is very complicated. You don't know the circumstances around it. I needed to do this little white lie because of the circumstances around me. But when somebody else lies to us, we immediately dehumanize them. And it's our way, which is the exact opposite of showing pity to them. But Miroslav Volf is totally right when he says that. I'll repeat it again. He says, forgiveness founders because I exclude the enemy from the community of humans, even as I exclude myself from the community of sinners. But no one can be in the presence of God, of the crucified Messiah, for long without overcoming this double exclusion. Absolutely right on. So in other words, if somebody, if we, you and I, the only way overpowering, to overpower, to destroy this tendency to dehumanize those who have offended us while elevating ourselves to the position of God is we have to see God lowering himself to the status of a broken human on the cross bearing our guilt and our shame. So, the first thing that we see is that we show pity. Second thing, cancel the debt. The idea of canceling a debt is huge. In fact, it is absolutely central to forgiveness. Let me give an example. If I were to be out in the parking lot and I walk by your car and I keyed it, right? Not intentionally, not like I have a key in my hand and like doing this, but if I had a key on my side, which I oftentimes do, if I walked by it and I scooted by and I keyed your car and I noticed it and you were right there, if I were to go to you and be like, oh my gosh, I'm so sorry, I, I didn't mean to do that, and uh, will you forgive me? Uh, you might know that I didn't do it on purpose, and you might actually say, you know what, don't worry about it, I'll, I'll take care of it. One of two things will happen for you. You will either, A, make a phone call that week, auto body shop, and try to figure out how much it's going to cost to get the thing repaired, maybe 100 bucks, 150 bucks. I have no idea how much it would cost. Or you would say, you know what, that's a junker car, I'm not going to worry about it, um, and you will... Either way, uh, you will incur a cost upon yourself. You will either pay for the fee to get the key, key part of the car fixed, or you will pay by having to always answer questions to everybody asking you, what happened to your car? And, you know, every couple of days, uh, my pastor keyed my car. <laughs> what? You know, well, let me explain. You know, the reality is you're going to have to pay either way, or I pay. I'm like, okay, you know, I'll just pay for this right now. Here's 150 bucks. You got to get it fixed. I'm sorry. At the end of the day, that offense 
that broken thing doesn't just evaporate, just does not go into mist or into thin air. At some point, somewhere along the line, it has to be incurred. There is a cost that has to be absorbed. But the same is true for any type of relationship that we have. When we have relationships with people and families and, uh, and relationships between you know, boyfriend and girlfriend, whatever the case is, or boss and employee, what happens is we will find ourselves in circumstances where offense will take place, and when offense happens, depending upon the size of the offense, payment will need to be made. All right, payment will need to be made. This is what happens in every type of relationship. And at some point, and here's the point, when, when, when you forgive, you're actually absorbing the cost. You're not just simply swiping it away. If you've ever been in a circumstance where you've had to forgive, you know how absolutely painful it is. It feels like you're being tortured. Every time you have to remind yourself, I'm going to choose to forgive, and you swallow the desire to be right, you swallow painfully the desire to want to be vindictive, it's absolutely painful. It feels like crucifixion, torture, because all forms of forgiveness incur a debt, and that debt needs to be absorbed somewhere. And what Jesus is saying in this particular parable, this story, that this king absorbs the debt. He absorbs the debt. He released him. He was owed $16 billion. That kind of begs the question, what in the world did this guy do to lose $16 billion? Who can do that? But somehow, however, this guy squandered, lost, mismanaged $16 billion of this king. And this good king says, I'll absorb it. I'll absorb the debt. I'll take it on the chin. This is what happens. The third thing is we see that he lets him go. He releases him. This is really what the word forgiveness means. In fact, in the New Testament, the word forgiveness actually, ironically, is even translated in some uh, passages as divorce. It's kind of crazy. Divorce, to cut away, to remove yourself from. And what Jesus is saying here is that these three things have to happen. One, show pity. Bring yourself back into the place of, bring that person, the offender, back into the place of being human. Bring yourself back into the community of sinners. And you begin to realize yourself, you're on the same par. And then you have to, at some point, cancel the debt, absorb the fee, absorb the cost, and then ultimately let them go. This is what happens. So here's the thing. If I were to just stop right now, I can finish up and say, look, at the end of the day, guys, Forgiveness is the right thing to do. Y'all know it. I mean, there's statistics, there's you know, scientific studies, all the stuff is proved. Uh, stop being negligent in these areas, start forgiving people, start being reconciliatory to all sorts of people, and we can just finish up and be like, go do your best and try as hard as you can to do it. And the reality is, all of us, all of us will walk away feel full of despair. Because we can't do this. This is hard. This is not easy. In fact, this is probably one of the most painful things to accept within the Christian walk. Because every single one of us will be offended or hurt or wounded by somebody at some point in our life. If you haven't yet, you will. It will happen. And how you choose to deal with it 
will either be like the person in the story, will cause you to become imprisoned or cause you to seek to imprison other people or to be someone that goes free. This is what Jesus is saying. This is absolutely essential. Some of you are controlled by past hurts. You can be somebody, for example, that had a relationship with a dad or a part of a church at some point, and whoever that person was, you never felt like you were living up to their standards, and so you were always trying today to live up to their standards, or in your mind, you might be someone that says something to the effect of, you know, well, my dad did this, and so I want to do the exact opposite. So you use all the energy in your life, in your power, in your grip, to try to be somebody other than your dad or that person that offended you in the past. See, really what you're basically showing or demonstrating is they still have power over you. You're not free. You're a slave. You're still bound. You could be somebody in a relationship today that may have come from a bad relationship, a bad breakup. Could have been a marriage that ended in divorce. And it's, you're fragile, it's painful. And your inability to trust other people, to love other people, to care for other people, your tendency to lean towards cynicism, all of those are evidences of the fact that you're really not free. You're under the weight and the influence of this past thing. And the connection point is this sense of unforgiveness. You're not released. Because what happens, interestingly enough, in the storyline, this guy goes out and does the exact opposite of what the master did to him. You see that? Rather than showing pity, he goes out and he basically says, you know, you're a fool, you owe me all this money. Not only that, he doesn't release him, he actually seizes him. Jesus places this intentional irony in the story. He actually says the guy goes out and grabs him by the neck, which is the exact opposite of releasing someone. He grabs him by the neck and starts choking him. Gets him in an arm bar, right? And he's trying to crush him. And what Jesus is really saying is that we have to take this stuff seriously. Otherwise, it will lead to a place of constant brokenness. But how do we do this? How do we get the power to do this? Because at the end of the day, what we need to see is that in the story, the parable that Jesus is giving, he's not just telling some random story just to make people feel good about themselves. What Jesus is doing here in the story, as with every other circumstance in Jesus' life, every miracle Jesus did, every storm that was calmed, every person that was dead that was raised from the dead, every single teaching that Jesus ever gave had one objective, to point people back to himself. And in the story, Jesus is the king. He is the king that has come into this world, seeking, searching, looking to settle the debt with those that have offended him. The $6 billion debts that everyone has incurred. But how does Jesus do that? Even though he doesn't tell it in the story, the rest of the story of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John go on to tell it. Because what we see is on the cross, Jesus being crushed. Why? Why is Jesus being crushed? Why is he being bruised? Why is he being afflicted? Why is he being tormented on the cross? The answer? That God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself. How? Because Christ was taking upon himself your offense and my offense on himself in the pain, the suffering, the torment, the crucifixion, the excruciation, 
excruciating pain that Jesus was bringing into himself was him absorbing your debt. Here's what happens oftentimes. When we are offended, we oftentimes put ourselves in this place, like I said earlier, of looking down upon and dehumanizing other people. But let's take it a step further. Really, at the end of the day, what we're really trying to do is to kind of prop ourselves up to give ourselves a little throne. In other words, we get ourselves into the throne, and we feel as if we've got all the information now that we can render a verdict, right? No one's going to agree with that. You all agree with that? That's a perfect place for it. Amen. Amen, Brian. Amen. Yes, you're right. That's what's happening. So here's my point. What happens is we're looking for, we're gathering information so that we can make our case against the person that offended us. Really what we're doing is we're putting ourselves in the position of a judge or of a king. But the story that Jesus told is really the rightful place of this guy was a servant. But the place where this servant went was this was the story of a servant who became a king. And being in this position of a king, he seeks to go out and crush the one who owes him $16,000. And he was wrong. But if you see where the storyline that Jesus is taking us to, and you see its fulfillment, it will melt your heart. Because here's what the storyline is really all about. Is that the story of you and I, represented by the first servant, is the story of people who are actually servants making themselves to be kings. Thinking that we are the righteous judges. But the story of the gospel is the story of a king who becomes a servant. The story of the gospel is the story of the king, the ultimate king, the only true rightful judge who knows every single intent of our heart, actions of our lives, why we do the things that we do. The story of the gospel is the story of the king coming into this world, becoming like a servant, ultimately to the point of taking upon himself, incurring upon himself the debt that every single one of us incurred. And he himself, rather than like the servant who became a king who went out to crush his opponent, the story of the king who became a servant was crushed for his opponents. To the degree that you see that this is what Jesus did for you. And that the debt that you owed to him was a debt that you could have never paid. Not in a thousand lifetimes. But a debt that he freely, willfully chose to forgive. By absorbing the penalty in himself, he created the way for you to go free. This is why on the cross, Jesus, one of his last words was it is finished, which can actually be translated, it's paid in full. What was paid in full? The debt. The debt that you and I owe. was paid in full. He absorbed it. To the degree that you see that Jesus did that for you, that softens our heart. It changes us from being cynics to realizing that really we're deserving a lot of judgment, and yet God has heaped, heaped mounds of grace forgiveness upon us I want to finish with a little video clip it's going to have the worship team coming up and they're going to close in a song but I want to as they're coming up I want to show this little video clip it's uh, um, of a lady by the name of Corey Timboom some of you might be familiar with her 
all right? Um, there's a movie that was put out a long time ago. You can actually watch the whole thing on YouTube. It's called The Hiding Place. And Corey Timboom was a, um, a survivor from, the, uh, from a prison camp, Nazi prisoner camp. Uh, she was non-Jewish, but she was actually thrown in prison for helping Jews during World War II. And uh, what had happened was she was thrown in this prison camp, and then afterwards, getting out of the prison camp, she kind of became sort of a, a popular speaker. She'd go around all over Europe and America and preach what God had done in her life and kind of share testimony and so on and so forth. And oftentimes, she would go to these, uh, these speaking engagements, and she would start out, and she was like, you know, hi, my name is Corey Ten Boom, and I'm a murderer. You know, this sweet, cute little old lady. I mean, you'll hear her voice, and uh, she was just this really, really sweet lady. And... Um, and it always kind of shocked the people. It was like, how, how could she be a murderer, you know? But that's the whole point. She goes in to kind of explain. So what she's going to share in this little video clip. It's like two minutes long. I've just found it on YouTube. I don't even know who did it. But um, in this little video clip, it's just kind of uh, her description of how she learned to forgive um, an, an SS guard. When she was in this concentration camp, um, her and her sister, her sister's name was Betsy, um, she describes how they were oftentimes stripped of their clothing, they were naked, they didn't eat a lot of food, and as they would kind of go into the showers to do the things that they would do, hard labor, uh, the, the, um, the soldiers would oftentimes mock them and make fun of them, but there's one particular soldier that did it the, the most, and they would oftentimes touch their bodies, they would walk by and make fun of them and rate their bodies and so on and so forth. There's just constant uh, humiliation uh, to them as they would do this. And then ultimately, before she got out of the prison camp, uh, her sister Betsy died, and she basically would accuse the fact that her sister died because of this SS guard. So years later, she is teaching at a church, and she notices this particular SS guard uh, years later is, is actually now a Christian at this speaking engagement that she was talking at about forgiveness. And this is her little storyline. And as soon as this is over, I'm going to um, um, just come on up and I'm gonna pray for us. We'll sing a couple more songs in closing. And if there's any here, you right now, that kind of feel like you, know, you need to be prayed for, maybe this is where you're at. Maybe there are people in your life that you are, you're, you're still holding on to these grudges. Um, and you're still imprisoned, you're bound. Um, the beautiful truth is that Jesus wants to set you free. He wants to deliver you. De- deliver you. He wants to free you. He wants to help you. If you're here today in any circumstance like that, uh, we want to have some people available to pray for you. They'll be up, so as soon as we start singing, they'll be up available for you guys to pray. I encourage you to go pray for them. We have some rugs in the front that you can just get before Jesus and sing to him and worship him. You can partake of communion at, uh, afterwards as well. Um, if you have kids in the back, it might be a good idea um, to maybe go grab them. You can bring them back in here and do communion and sing with them as well as soon as the little video clips over. And then and we'll dismiss you guys. But don't want to miss the opportunity of maybe God wanting to do something in your life. If you're here today and you're not a Christian, and you're not really reconciled to God. The first step is God wants to reconcile you to himself by you repenting, turning from your sin, and recognizing the great price that God has paid to reconcile you back to himself. So listen to this little video clip, and I'll come up and pray, and then we'll sing. It was some time ago that I was in Berlin. And there came a man to me and said, Ah, Mr. Bohm, I am glad to see you. Don't you know me? And suddenly I saw that man that was one of the most cruel officers in concentration camp. 
And that man said, I have, I'm now a Christian. I have found the Lord Jesus. I read my Bible and I know that there is forgiveness for all the sins of the whole world. Also for my sins. I have forgiveness for the cruelties I have done. But then I have asked God grace for an opportunity that I could ask one of my very victims forgiveness. And Fräulein Tambom, will you forgive me? And I could not. I remembered the suffering of my dying sister through him. But when I saw, when I experienced that I could not forgive, suddenly I knew I myself have no forgiveness. But I was not able, I could not, I could only hate him. And then I took one of these beautiful texts, one of these boundless resources, Romans 5 5. And thank you, Father, that your love is stronger than my hatred and unforgiveness. That same moment I was free. And I could say, brother, give me your hand. And I shook hands with him. And it was as if I felt God's love stream through my arms. You never touch so the ocean of God's love as that you forgive your enemies. Can you forgive? No. I can't either. But he can. I'm going to pray. Let's sing. Somebody pick up your kids. Just worship. If you need prayer, we'll have some people available. They'll be making their way up there right now just to pray with you. Just, just don't leave today without getting this stuff made right in your heart with God. It might look different for each one of us because each one of us might have had different levels of offense happen in our lives. But just let the gospel have its effect and impact upon you of working this stuff out. God, just thank you for the cross. We want to sing to you. We want to worship you. We want to give you thanks, Jesus, for what you've done. And we want to sing back to you out of gratitude. God, for those of us that have heavy hearts and need to repent and turn from things, God, we pray that we'd be able to do that. Lay these things down before you. So help us just to sing now, God, with liberated, free hearts, loving you. You guys, let's, uh, let's all stand. What I'd like to do, and it's kind of as a way of sign to sh- show we take this serious, or at least we want to take this serious. If it's something that we challenge, are challenged by, we struggle with, um, it's a way to kind of help us to really say this is the direction we want to go, we want to be. Um, so what I want to do is I'm going to pray over all of us right now, and, and how I want to pray is I want, I want to have all of you guys out there either take the hand of the person next to you, um, you can lock arms with them, you can put your arm around them. It's just a way of us saying that we, we really want to do this right, we want to do this seriously and and if we as a church we can't be one I mean the church of all places unfortunately is a place where there's a lot of dysfunctionality a lot of brokenness people squabble over stupid things all the time don't believe me just read blogs Christian blogs all the time but if we can't learn to love each other claim to have had received forgiveness from God who claim to be part of the same blood-bought family, adopted into the same family. And we got, we got problems, man. We, we have to at least be willing to confess. 
we're not doing it right and we want to do it differently. That's all, that's all I'm throwing out here. So I'm going to pray over all of us and um, ask God's help and God's blessing. So God, right now we just acknowledge the fact that we don't do this well. We really just truly don't do this well. And God, oftentimes it's because we, we feel justified in our ways. Uh, sometimes it may be the offense or the hurt has been very, very deep. And God, we need your help. We need your help. And Jesus, we really, truly want your name to be made great along the Central Coast. We want, Jesus, your name to be made much of because we believe, Jesus, you are the way, the truth, and the life. You, no one gets to the Father. No one receives life outside of Jesus. God, we want to be as Christocentric as Christ is, as Paul was. We want our lives to reflect that. So God, help us to embody this, to live this out, beginning in this room, beginning amongst us, beginning amongst brother and sister, part of this family. And then God, circling outward into our marriages or even broken marriages or neighbors or people that we've known from our past. God, we want to live this and embody this. And we know that we can't do this on our own. We need your help to be able to do it. So we're asking you, Jesus, to empower us, to help us. Holy Spirit, we ask you for your empowering strength and might and ability to give to us every single thing that we need to live this out. Fall afresh upon us. Baptize us anew. Fill us afresh, God, with everything that we need to live this out. Pray for your help. God, that it would be for your glory, for our joy, and for the blessing of all people who are impacted by the gospel. So we pray for your help. Empower my brothers and sisters. Empower all of us to do this and to live this out. We ask all of these things in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.